Welcome to the June 1st, 2023 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. First on today's podcast, for patients with relapsed or refractory Hodgkin lymphoma, survival outcomes have improved after development of several novel agents. Authors of a retrospective study say the benefits are especially pronounced with the use of PD-1 inhibitor-based regimens prior to transplant. Second on today's podcast, precision engineering of therapeutic T-cells through extragenic safe harbors. By integrating the transgene at a site in the genome that provides safe, stable gene expression, researchers demonstrate sustained, predictable chimeric antigen receptor expression and encouraging in vivo efficacy. Finally, using a single-cell atlas to map features of imatinib resistance in diagnostic CML bone marrow. Investigators present gene expression signatures predictive of response to TKI therapy. Let's turn to our first research article, which is entitled, Improved Outcomes for Relapsed Refractory Hodgkin Lymphoma After Autologous Transplantation in the Era of Novel Agents. The first author is Michael A. Spinner of Stanford University in Stanford, California. We've seen an expanded array of treatment options for relapsed refractory classic Hodgkin lymphoma over the past decade or so. The armamentarium includes new approaches for salvage therapy prior to autologous stem cell transplantation, post-transplant consolidation, and relapse. This evolution has been driven by the emergence of three novel therapies, namely brentuximab-vidotin, nivolumab, and pembrolizumab. The first was brentuximab-vidotin, an anti-CD30 antibody drug conjugate that was approved in 2011. Then came the PD-1 inhibitors nivolumab, approved in 2016, and pembrolizumab, approved in 2017. At first, these agents were studied in patients who experienced multiple relapses and had progressive disease following autologous transplant resulting in increased rates of overall and complete response. In subsequent studies, the novel agents have been successfully incorporated into earlier lines of therapy, including maintenance following transplant, salvage therapy before transplant, and even frontline therapy. With these developments in mind, Spinner and co-authors sought to quantify changes in outcomes and practice patterns brought on by the availability of these novel agents. They looked at a cohort of consecutive patients with relapsed or refractory classic Hodgkin lymphoma who underwent autologous transplant at Stanford Hospital. The cohort was split into two groups, those treated between 2001 and 2010, or essentially before the approval of any novel agents and those treated between 2011 and 2020, representing the modern era of novel therapies. Altogether, there were 342 patients in the analysis, including 183 transplanted in the modern era and 159 in the earlier time period. Overall, the median age of transplant was 33 years. 55% were male and 62% were non-Hispanic white. Most patients had advanced stage disease and B symptoms, 44% had bulky disease, and 29% had extranodal involvement. Prior to being transplanted, the patients had received between one and six therapies, with a median of two. About half of the patients were in metabolic complete response, as assessed by positron emission tomography at the time of transplantation, with a higher percentage in complete response in the modern era. 
Treatment approaches were quite different in the modern era of 2011 to 2020. 57% of patients received brentuximab vidotin, and 31% received a PD-1 inhibitor. In the earlier era of 2001 to 2010, only 14% received brentuximab vidotin, and just 1% received a PD-1 inhibitor. In the modern era, only 32% of patients were treated with radiotherapy, compared to 73% in the pre-modern era. Some treatment outcomes were substantially improved in the modern era. Of note, four-year overall survival was 89.1% versus 79%, with a hazard ratio of 0.53 and a p-value of 0.011. Progression-free survival was not statistically different between eras. Investigators dug deeper into these outcomes, further separating the groups by response at the time of transplant. For patients transplanted in partial response, overall survival was superior in the modern era. But for patients transplanted in complete response, there was no differences in overall survival or progression-free survival. Other outcomes were reported. There was a trend toward lower non-relapse mortality in the modern era, evident after two years post-transplant. Also, for patients who had progressed post-transplant, survival improved in the modern era. Four-year post-progression survival was 71.4% in the modern era versus 43.3% in the pre-modern era. In multivariable analysis of patients treated in the modern era, several factors had a significant impact on outcomes. Regarding progression-free survival, use of a PD-1 inhibitor prior to transplant was associated with a superior outcome, while age of 45 years or older, primary refractory disease, and no complete response prior to transplant were associated with inferior outcomes. And for overall survival in the modern era, extranodal disease at time of relapse was linked to an inferior outcome. In a commentary, Reed W. Merriman and Anne S. LaCase of Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston say these findings show how novel agents have profoundly changed outcomes for patients with relapsed or refractory classic Hodgkin lymphoma. Treatment with PD-1 inhibitors prior to transplant may be especially beneficial, the commentary authors say, since there is growing evidence that PD-1 blockade increases sensitivity to subsequent high-dose chemotherapy. They say definitive evidence to support PD-1 inhibitor use in the second-line setting could come from a randomized trial planned by the U.S. cooperative groups that will evaluate the addition of a PD-1 inhibitor to chemotherapy. However, many questions remain. Should all patients in partial response receive additional therapy with the goal of achieving a complete response prior to transplant? Is peritransplant radiation needed anymore? And perhaps most provocatively, is transplant still required for all patients? While outcomes have improved, the commentary authors say more work is needed to determine the optimal place for brentuximab and PD-1 inhibitors in the treatment of classic Hodgkin lymphoma. The next research article is entitled Novel Extragenic Genomic Safe Harbors for Precise Therapeutic T-Cell Engineering, and the first author is Ashlesha Odak of Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York City. The role of therapies based on engineered immune cells is rapidly expanding. One prominent example is the introduction of genes encoding chimeric antigen receptors into T-cells, creating CAR T-cells that are then genetically reprogrammed to target and destroy cancer cells. But in order for this therapy to be effective, CAR T-cell engineering requires predictable and dependable transgene expression, sustaining an optimal level over time without causing genotoxic adverse events. Conventional approaches to gene transfer involve retroviral, lentiviral, or transposon-based vectors. These vectors are good at achieving stable genetic modifications. 
but they integrate in a semi-random fashion, resulting in inconsistent transgene expression, which may impact clinical potency. Suboptimal CAR expression may also impair the function of T-cells through activation, exhaustion, and differentiation. These vectors are biased toward gene loci. That's good because it increases the likelihood of transgene expression at high levels. But it also increases the risk of disrupting the expression of endogenous genes, which could lead to oncogene activation. So how can these challenges be overcome? In theory, it should be possible to optimize integration of the transgene at so-called genomic safe harbors, or GSH. That is, sites that allow for consistent, safe, and stable gene expression and no disruption of host cell function. Sites previously proposed as genomic safe harbors are situated in genes thought to be non-essential or near to genes unlikely to contribute to cancer development, but their surrounding regions include many genes, increasing risk of gene transactivation by various enhancer-promoter elements. Thus, ODAC and colleagues have sought to identify alternative genomic safe harbors off the beaten path. These extragenic genomic safe harbors are located in non-coding regions that don't interfere with the structure of the functional genome. The challenge is to find an extragenic region that allows for sustained transgene expression. The investigators developed and used an algorithm to identify promising extragenic genetic safe harbors. That algorithm included seven criteria designed to direct transgene integration away from functionally important elements, such as cancer-related genes, optimize CRISPR-Cas9 targeting, and avoid transgene silencing. Out of 379 candidate safe harbor sites, 10 were more extensively tested, and the top six were evaluated for cleavage efficiency, and all were efficiently cleaved using CRISPR-Cas9. However, after integration of a CAR transgene, expression of the CAR was variable. All sites expressed CAR initially, but most silenced after antigen exposure, some within days. Only one was able to sustain expression following two weekly antigen exposures. This site, which researchers called GSH6, afforded potent in vivo anti-tumor activity. In a mouse model of acute lymphoblastic leukemia, a single infusion of T-cells engineered to express a CD19 CAR at GSH6 were curative at low doses. They resisted multiple tumor re-challenges, including one re-challenge 100 days after infusion. Furthermore, expression of endogenous genes on either side of GSH6 was not perturbed by integration of the CAR at this site. These T-cells match the effectiveness of T-cells with CAR targeted to the TRAC locus, or T-cell receptor alpha-constant locus, which was previously identified to allow for stable expression of CAR genes. However, the GSH6 CAR T-cells may have some advantages over the TRAC CAR T-cells. Antigen stimulation rapidly increased CAR expression at both the TRAC locus and the GSH6 locus. However, after antigen was removed, CAR expression remained permanently elevated while CAR expression at GSH6 was dynamic, returning to normal levels after antigen removal. These results suggest a profile that may help avoid tonic-elevated CAR signaling that could cause premature exhaustion of the CAR T-cells. Moreover, in contrast to the TRAC CAR T-cells, the GSH6 CAR T-cells retain a normal T-cell receptor, which may help increase in vivo expansion in some cases. In a commentary, Dimitrios Loren Wagner of Charité, Universitätsmedizin Berlin, Berlin, Germany, and Maxim Momonkin of Baylor College of Medicine in Houston write that this study expands the potential to engineer potent CAR T-cell products.
Wagner and Mamonkin also say that the study also provides resources for the identification of other extragenic genomic safe harbor locations, and note that the extragenic GSH6 locus identified in this study may already be practical for a variety of clinical applications of T-cell engineering. Besides fostering transgenes such as CARS, GSH6 could be leveraged to develop enhanced T-cell products or to develop gene therapies for T-cell-related immunodeficiencies. However, the high rate of failure in this study, with only one feasible site confirmed out of 10 predicted sites, goes to show how limited our understanding of the non-coding genome is today. When sufficiently understood and combined with new gene editing strategies, the commentary authors say, targeted transgene integration might be used to build safe, robust genetic architectures with therapeutic purpose. The final article is titled, A Single Cell Atlas Identifies Pretreatment Features of Primary Imatinib Resistance in Chronic Myeloid Leukemia. The first author is Vaidehi Krishnan of Duke NUS Medical School in Singapore. While BCR-ABLE tyrosine kinase inhibitors, or TKIs, have been enormously successful in the treatment of CML, only about 40% of patients achieve a major molecular response, or MMR, after 12 months of treatment, and 10-15% to 15 of patients ultimately progress to blast crisis. Those statistics underscore a need for biomarkers to predict TKI response, thereby setting the stage for novel strategies that have the potential to overcome primary resistance. For example, recent data indicate that a rapid decline in BCR-ABLE1 transcript levels in the first three months of treatment predicts not only MMR, but also treatment-free remission. However, the ability to predict the probability of treatment success at the time of diagnosis is still inadequate. The authors review previous studies that suggest that the factors contributing to successful treatment with TKIs are already present to diagnosis, and that these factors likely reside in both the leukemic cells themselves, as well as in the patient's immune cells. For example, studies of gene expression by RNA sequence analysis of bulk cells have had some success in predicting TKI response and blast crisis transformation in patients with chronic phase CML. And previous work from the authors of the present research article show that epigenetic programming contributes to a set of gene expression changes that are also predictive of treatment outcome. In addition, other studies have shown that outcomes are influenced by both numerical and functional changes in various immune cells, including NK cells, cytotoxic T cells, dendritic cells, B cells, and myeloid-derived suppressor cells. To take these findings one step further, Krishnan and co-investigators surveyed the bone marrow compartment of patients with CML using single-cell RNA sequencing, the results of which were evaluated with machine learning techniques. Those analyses revealed specific gene expression signatures in leukemic stem cells and natural killer cells that predict TKI resistance at the time of diagnosis. In leukemic stem cells from patients who achieved MMR, they identified an erythroid-specifying regulon, TAL1-KLF1-GATA1. In vitro, this hallmark gene expression signature was linked to a pronounced erythroid over myeloid bias, while in vivo it was linked to erythroid progenitor expansion. These features were lost in patients who had primary drug resistance. 
In patients going into MMR, there was also significant expansion of a rare subset of NK cells that also was missing in those patients destined to fail TKI treatment. For patients who eventually transformed to blast crisis, different features emerged, namely inflammatory regulons driven by MYC and IRF1. Patients destined for blast crisis also accumulated inhibitory NKG2A-positive NK cells, which investigators said favored NK cell tolerance. Based on those findings, Krishnan and colleagues have developed new hypotheses as to how TKI sensitivity could be predetermined, either by leukemic stem cell fate decisions or by interactions between NK cells and hematopoietic stem and progenitor cells. Krishnan et al. have also taken some first steps toward converting these patterns of gene expression into biomarkers that could inform clinical practice. They designed a custom panel of 38 antibodies designed for flow cytometry or mass cytometry, to detect the features unveiled by their single-cell gene expression signature. Altogether, investigators concluded that their candidate biomarkers have the potential to predict a patient's response to therapy at diagnosis, including the potential to transform to blast crisis. These findings may also inform new therapeutic approaches. In a commentary, David M. Ross of the South Australian Health and Medical Research Institute in Adelaide says these single cells can tell multiple tales in CML. Ross says the findings of this study suggest that immune imbalance in this disease may be at least in part predetermined, as opposed to being the result of TKI therapy. Furthermore, he says, an inhibitory immune profile may be linked to the emergence of blast crisis. Can the potential for treatment failure or transformation be pinpointed at diagnosis? If so, there may be a need for clinical trials designed to determine whether these risks could be reduced by intensified first-line therapy. Cost and analytical complexity are two barriers to broad application of single-cell sequencing in clinical practice. However, the researchers show the potential for detecting predictive signatures using antibody panels and flow cytometry. In the meantime, Ross concludes, the present research paper provides hypotheses that can be tested now through a better understanding and targeting of biological pathways that precipitate treatment failure and blast crisis. Research could lead to improved outcomes at both ends of the CML response spectrum. You have been listening to The Blood Podcast. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode. Thank you for listening.